1 Corinthians chapter 2 um, is our starting point. As we talk about studying the Bible, I think it needs to be made very clear that all of the methodology and all of the, the tips and helps and all of that is of little use if we don't have the primary ingredient for rightly dividing the word of truth, and that's the guiding of God's Holy Spirit. There's plenty of people out there that have studied the Bible at length, that have committed large portions to memory. It's, it's not out of the realm of possibility that the Apostle Paul, before his conversion, before he was saved, as a Pharisee, had committed, at the very least, the Pentateuch to memory. Some would argue he had committed the entire Old Testament to memory. That was a standard thing for a Pharisee of Pharisees like he was. But obviously, pre-salvation, he didn't, have the, he didn't have what he needed to handle that information rightly, did he? His actions would bear that out. So we need to make sure it's understood that, that all of this is for naught if we are not under the leadership of the Holy Spirit of God in our studying of his word. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth. Comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither, not will, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. The natural man is incapable, incapable of understanding the word of God in a way that is of eternal significance. There's a, a video that's been put out by Ben Shapiro's group, Daily Wire, in which a bunch of really top-tier intellectual minds are studying the book of Exodus together. And they come up with some really interesting conclusions and thoughts and applications. Problem is, as best I know, there's not a one of them at the table that makes an honest profession of salvation. There's some smart guys, but none of them actually get it. Why? Because they're lacking the Holy Spirit. And you might be saved and on your way to heaven, but as a Christian, if you are not availing yourself of the guidance of the Holy Spirit, you're not going to get it either. Neither am I. I'm reminded of what Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 26, but the comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall what? Teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. If you have the book and you're keeping track, uh, tonight we're going to endeavor to handle, last week we did lessons one through three, tonight lessons four through six. Now we're running behind 
this ninth through 12th graders. They're currently at lesson 17, I think. Now, in our defense, some of those lessons are really short, and I put them together, and we just went through them real fast. Um, gave them less things to have to study for for the quiz. All right. We'll catch up to them eventually. But I wanted to start out with that, with that thought that we need the Holy Spirit if any of this is going to do us any good at all. So let's pray, let's get into it, and, uh, and we'll go from there. Father, thank you for the opportunity that we have to study your word. Lord, my heart's desire, and this is something that has been burdening me lately, it's so easy for this to be too academic. It's so easy for this to be something that, while needed and useful, is not invigorating. I worry about that with my Bible class, Lord. It, 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 teenagers are, are already, we're already vying for all kinds of things to keep their attention, and I, I want to I teach them in the way that will most benefit them and help them. And Lord, my, discernment, my, my desire for that in here is no less. So Lord, would you help me to teach, and I guess in some spots preach, in the way that most pleases you and thus is of most help to all of us. Lord, would you just touch us tonight, speak to us, and help us as we continue in our efforts to learn how to rightly divide your word of truth. Thank you, Lord, for allowing us to be here. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you'll, you'll remember from last week that, that effective Bible study requires a method. You need to have a method. You don't want to go to anything just with willy-nilly, um, you know, just, oh, I'm just going to study the Bible there. No, you don't want to do that. You want a method, okay? Now, you remember what a method is. A method is a strategy. It's a plan of attack that will yield maximum results for your investment of time and effort, okay? I want to give you a formula. Here's a formula. And, and, and by the way, this works for everything, not just Bible study. This works for everything, okay? The right steps plus the right order equals the right results. The right steps in the right order equals the right results. I mean, think about that in any application. If you're baking a cake, you might have the right steps, but if you don't do them in the right order, your cake's not going to turn out right. It's not going to be the right result. If you're teaching a kid a sport, right now we have our, our volleyball team. This is their first time having a team in many, many years. And so our coach is having to teach them the right steps in the right order. What's that ultimately going to yield? It's going to yield the right results, see. Um, in school, the right steps in the right order. My son's in kindergarten. He hadn't touched algebra yet. Okay, we're still working on the cursive letter T. Eventually, he'll get to that other stuff. The right steps in the right order equals the right results. And with Bible study, it's the same thing. You have the right steps in the right order is going to yield the right results. Now, beyond the power of God's Spirit, we want to look at three ingredients to successful Bible study. We're only going to get into one of them tonight. Three ingredients to successful Bible study. Okay, first is this, observation. <laughs> Let's be honest. One of our biggest problems in life in general is sometimes we're just not as observant as we ought to be. Um, I, I'm not trying to be overtly political, but when I pastored my first church in Alabama, I had a guy ask me to come over to his house, and he explained to me that he took a certain position on a certain political issue, and that that was just how it is, and if I didn't like that, that you know we just wouldn't get along, 
and uh, I had just gotten there. I don't even hardly know this guy, and I'm like, I probably wouldn't even known if you hadn't told me. What are you doing? You know, I don't know, but he felt the need to tell me. All right, and he expressed why he took that position. And I asked him, I said, well, I'm not going to argue with you or anything, but you understand what others that take that position also believe, don't you? They also believe this, 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 and this, which goes against everything else that you say you believe. You know what his problem was? He wasn't paying attention. He was singularly focused. He wasn't circumspect looking all the way around. He was singularly focused on his chosen issue, and nothing else mattered. Sometimes we miss things because we just aren't looking. Observation. What do I see in the text? Isn't it amazing how many people read the Bible and don't actually see anything? Well, I've read the Bible through, and that, when I read it, it, it said, you shouldn't judge. Well, then you didn't see what I've seen. Because it does say that. You know, we'll not get into that tonight. Observation. That's going to be where we're going to spend most of our time tonight. But then there's also interpretation. Observation is what do I see? Interpretation is what does this mean? Boy, that's an important question, isn't it? Because there's a whole lot of people that observe things in the Bible and then they don't properly interpret it and they go the wrong direction with it. Observation, what do I see? interpretation, what does this mean? And then thirdly, application, what do I do? What do I do? Or what should I do? So let's, let's park in observation for a little while, okay? There, observation has certain elements. What are the elements of observation. There's four of them. We're going to come back to them many times over. So, you know, you do well to kind of file these away and keep them with you. Okay. The first element of observation, if I've got a, if I've got a passage of scripture and I'm seeking to properly observe it, the first element that I'm going to look at is terms. Define your terms. Know what every word in that passage means. Because if you misdefine a term, what happens? You're already off the path. You're already off the path. Terms. Know what words mean. Well, Andy, I don't know Hebrew. I don't know Greek. You don't have to. Get yourself a good Bible dictionary and you'll be fine. Well, if you didn't use that King James, you wouldn't need a Bible. I got news for you. Whatever translation you use, there's words in it you don't know what they mean. There's one translation in particular, and I'm not trying to be mean or anything, but they, they, they updated the word in, I believe it's in Daniel, they updated the word from governors to satraps. Oh, yeah, that's much more helpful. I know what a governor is. A satrap? I'd look that up. You know. know your terms. Number two, structure. I'm looking at structure. Now, I'm going to say a bad word. Everybody's listening now. There's two types of structure we're interested in. One, and I know this is a bad word because when I said it in the, in the Bible class, there was an audible gasp. Ready? 
grammatical structure. Grammar? Oh, now that's no, that's no slam on Mrs. Collins or Mrs. Helms. Just students have it built into them to not like grammar until they learn it's useful. Okay. By the way, I have to make a confession. I didn't catch it. All through this study sheet, the word grammar is misspelled. I'm so sorry. It's supposed to be G-R-A-M-M-A-R, and it's, I think it's on there as G-R-A-M-M-E-R. To my, in my defense, spell check didn't point it out. So maybe there is an alternate spelling that's allowed there, but I know the difference. So Ms. Collins will beat me later, but it'll be all right. Grammatical structure. Now think about this for a second. When you're reading a verse of Scripture, is it useful to know the subject, the main verb, the object, the modifiers, prepositions? Are these things useful? I'll give you an example. Who is, who is the main character of the story of the prodigal son? It's the father. You know why? Because who's the main subject? Jesus said a certain man had two sons. Who's the subject? Man, the father. And so that completely changes the way I view that story. It's not about primarily either of the two sons. It's about a gracious father and how he deals with those two sons. See, grammar matters. Prepositions. What have, we, what have we said many times? Never, 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 never base doctrine on a preposition. Because prepositions by their nature go different directions. Don't base your doctrine on a preposition. It'll mislead you. Okay? So we've got grammatical structure, but then you've got literary structure. For instance, are there, are there literary mechanisms that is being used here? Is it a Q&A? Climax versus resolution, cause and effect, things like that. I don't know, now it's starting to sound riveting, isn't it? We'll get into why that matters. So structure, grammatical or literary or otherwise. Then we get a little more specific. You've got terms, you've got structure, then you've got literary form. What you're reading, what is its literary form? For instance... What would you say psalms are? It's poetry. Particularly Psalm 119. We'll get into that in a minute. It's a poem. Okay? Something like the book of Acts or any of the Gospels would be a narrative. It's a story, a true story, but a story. How about a legal argument? Most of Paul's epistles... And I would include Hebrews in that from this perspective. He's making a legal argument. He's proving his case. And it builds on itself. I'm going to tell you, attorneys would do well to study the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul demonstrated a brilliant mind in general, but especially a brilliant legal mind. Making an argument. How about a parable? If you know something to be a parable, does it change how you interpret it? Yeah. It does. Those are just four, four uh, illustrations. 
So when you're observing a passage, you're looking at the terms, you're looking at the structure, you're looking at the literary form, and then finally, you're looking at the atmosphere. Now, what do we mean by the atmosphere? These are the circumstances surrounding the writing or the narrative. What's going on in this passage, or what's going on with the person writing this passage? We'll get into this in more detail, but just think of the book of Psalms. Some of those Psalms are written in happy atmospheres, aren't they? Some of those psalms are written in very difficult atmospheres. All of these things are things that you should have in your mind when you're studying the Bible. Now, let me pause for a second because I had to do this with the young people as well. I am not saying that this needs to be in your thinking every time you sit down for your Bible reading. I make a distinction between sitting down and reading the Bible and sitting down and studying the Bible. When I get up in the morning, I spend some time reading God's word and praying and so forth. But I'm going to tell you right now, I don't do my deepest study in the mornings. I try to start my day with the Lord and his word, and I try to read and take something in, but it's much more devotional. But later in the day and usually into the evening, for some reason, my mind is most porous to those kind of things in the evenings. And I think I developed that habit at my first church. At my first church, I wasn't married, had no kids, obviously. Um, I could be in the office at night. I'm not neglecting anybody, nobody. And I just learned at night to listen and to get into the, the more depth. So I'm not saying that every time you do your Bible reading, okay, what's the terms, what's the structure, what's the literary form, what's the atmosphere? No, you don't need to do that. But when you sit down to study your Bible on purpose, these are four things you need to consider in the observation of Scripture. We'll be back to observation in a minute. Let's talk about interpretation for a minute. What are the keys to the proper interpretation of a passage? Number one, ask questions. We'll get into this in more detail later, but but let's... uh, Let's take, for example, what we read to start off with, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 12. Now, we have, who's we? Go back and find out. We have received, what did we receive? We've got to go back and find out. Not the spirit of the world, but why is that spirit little s and not big s? See, I'm, there's all kinds of questions you can ask. Be ready to ask questions. We sometimes, we sometimes you know, we, we, we joke about kids, why this and why that, and ask this question. That. No, that's how they learn. Every, anybody that has done a Sunday school class or a class at the school or whatever, you have had that kid that has got a question ready for you that you don't have an answer to. And I love it. Now, you also have that kid that's trying to stump you with something weird, you know. Who is Cain's wife? Had to be a sister. Ew, don't ask me again. You know, but, <laughs> but I found out that I've had one parent tell me that since we've started doing this in school, that their child has come home and started asking them questions. They're like, look, can you handle this? No, you do it, you know. And, but they're asking, well, I love that. That's how you learn. You ask questions. Now, here's the thing. You ready for this? This is going to blow you away. You want to properly interpret a passage, you ask a lot of questions. But number two, be intent on finding the answers. There are some people that make a career out of asking questions but never actually getting to any answers. They've spent their whole life trying to figure out, where did we come from? 
Well, I know where we came from. Where are we headed? I know where I'm headed to. Why are we here? At some point, you got to come to an answer. And so, be intent on finding answers. But then number three, this is an interesting one. Questions, answers, and then integration. Now, how do we define integration? We define it as assembling information into a conclusion. Mr. Hendricks, who wrote this book, was talking about he was, he was invited to come preach at a man's church. And as I tell you this story, this is something that really cut me deep. I, I really was convicted about this. Um, he came to fill a pulpit for a pastor who was out of town, and he asked the deacon, he said, uh, he said is there anything y'all don't want me to cover, any, anywhere you don't want me to preach? He said, preach anywhere in the book you want to, but not Ephesians. He said, not Ephesians? He said, no. The pastor has been taking us verse by verse through the book of Ephesians for the last two years. So stay out of Ephesians. He thought that's interesting. He went out to eat that afternoon with a group of people from the church, and he asked them some questions about Ephesians. He said they had learned all kinds of minute information from the book of Ephesians, but when he asked simple things like, what's the theme? What's the point? Nobody could give him an answer. And you know where my mind first went? Galatians. We stayed in Galatians a long time, and I wondered, did I do a sufficient job? Oh, we covered all kinds of minutiae. Did I do a good enough job leaving you with the point? The point of the book of Galatians. If you study through the book of Philippians and you don't walk away with a better understanding of joy, you missed it. That's integration. That's taking what we've learned and making something usable. That's something that's on my heart about this. When we get done with this, whenever that is, when we get done with this, if we can't walk away with this and use it to be better students of God's word, then it was for nothing. And I blew it. I want us to be able to integrate what we've learned in this. So observation and interpretation. And then let's say something about application. When we talk about application, there's, there's two things to consider. First of all, when I, when I read a passage, I've observed it, I've come up with a proper interpretation. First of all, what are the implications for me? What am I supposed to do with this? And then what are the implications for others? And how can I help them apply this? Implications for me, the implication for others. You hear me say this all the time. Application is the so what of Bible study. When you're studying a portion of Scripture, if you never get to a so what, you didn't do it right. Yeah, but I'm studying numbers. And I'm part of the New Testament local church. And you think there's nothing in numbers for you? There may not be a direct interpretation for you, but there's absolutely some application. So what of Bible study? The author gives us this reminder. Always keep in mind the big picture. 
wherever you're reading, wherever you're studying, find a way to string it back to Christ and his redemptive work. Because that's where everything, that's the hub that everything comes out of. It's the old saying, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. So in summary of this section, not this lesson, y'all got prematurely excited. Three steps for careful, effective Bible study. Three steps for careful, effective Bible study. Number one, and all God's people said, duh, read. Next week, you know what our lesson is? How to read the Bible. I already know how to read the Bible. No, you don't. There's always something we can improve on in how we read the Bible. I'm I'm actually going to, if the Lord will help me and I can get it done in time, I'm actually going to do an exercise with you that I did with the teenagers. I gave them some, excuse me, (coughs) I gave them something to read, and I gave them 30 seconds or whatever to read it. And I said, all right, turn it over. Now answer the questions on the back. (coughs) (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) They didn't do as well as they thought they would. You know why? They didn't really read it. You've heard that old chestnut. Are you reading for comprehension? Let's be honest. <coughs> we can sit down with our Bible. Paul called me an apostle of Jesus Christ, through the Lord God, and Sosthenes, our brother, into the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Called me. Have you ever read a passage of Scripture and gone back and not remembered anything you actually read? It's something akin to have you ever driven home from work and not remember one mile of the trip? You can go into muscle memory up here just like you can here. <clears throat> so read. And then as you read, record. And what do I mean by record? Probably the best thing for us to do is to write things down. Psalm 119.11. Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. The word hid means to treasure or to store up. What's the best way for me to immediately store things up that I might one day have it in my heart and in my memory, and that's to write things down. Record it. Read, record, and then reflect. If there's not a time in your Bible study time where you're sitting quietly, you're doing something wrong. And sometimes... You almost, we have a tendency, humans have a tendency to feel like you need to be actively doing something to accomplish something. Not necessarily. Sometimes the best thing I can do is I come across a verse in Scripture to stop, sit quietly, listen, reflect. Psalm 119.15, I will meditate in thy precepts. 
and have respect unto thy ways. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.13, Till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy, with the laying on of hands of the presbytery. Meditate upon these things. Give thyself wholly to them, that thy profiting may appear to all. I spent a lot of time in this auditorium. Certainly not as much time probably as I should, but I've spent a good bit of time kneeling right here, praying over different things. But there's something else I've learned to do. This is generally, throughout the day, this is usually the quietest room in the building that's mostly left alone. I've learned to come in here and just sit. Remember we did that message about being quiet before the Lord? And I started the message off by just sitting here? And some of y'all thought I'd had a stroke? And we were very uncomfortable with the silence, weren't we? It bothered us. This isn't right. Something's not right here. We have got to learn to sit down and hush up and let God speak to us. I'm all for the kid that asks a lot of questions in class, but where that needs to be balanced is that they be quiet and listen to the lecture too so that they have the information to form good questions. Just be quiet. I think a lot of us are going to get to heaven. Lord, why didn't you speak to me about that that thing? Because you wouldn't be quiet long enough. Learn to reflect. It's page one. Let's look into observation a little bit more closely. We'll move quickly. The value of observation. The class recites this verse every, every class period. I pray this every time I open the Word of God. Psalm 119, 18, Open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. Lord, I need to hear from you today. So we talked about with observation, we talked about terms, structure, literary form, and atmosphere. So let's, let's dig into that a little bit. First of all, terms. Would you turn to first, uh, not first, Acts 1, verse 8? We're going to use that as our, uh, as our example verse. Acts 1, verse 8. Well, you got it up there. Why do I need to turn? Because I may have mistyped it. I mean, I messed up grammar. But ye shall receive power. 
After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and in Samaria, and to the uttermost part of the earth. That's the fifth of five, what we call great commissions. You see some variation of that in all four Gospels, and then Acts chapter 1, verse 8. It's the last thing Jesus said before he left earth. Last things really matter, don't they? Last thing he said really matters. All of it matters, but especially the last thing, the Great Commission. I asked the young people to jot down three or four words within that verse that they thought were what we called theologically significant. If they were studying this, this verse, what words would they look to to get more information? And let me say this, we're talking about ninth through 12th graders. The words they chose, some of them were not the same words I chose, but their choices were really interesting. I'd like you to do that now, just in your mind, pick out three or four words that you think are theologically significant, terms that if you were studying this verse, you'd want to dig into. I've chosen three for time's sake. Okay, just just get them in your head. All right, let me give you the ones I chose. Very first one. Why? What does that do? It's, it's a conjunction. It signalizes, it signalizes, wow. It signals a turning, a shift. So when you see the word but, it contrasts whatever came before it. I'll give an example. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but perish, have eternal life. You see, it's a shift. So when I look at the word but, it makes me, it forces me into something called context. If it starts off with that word, there's something ahead of it I need, I need to make note of. So where do I go? I go back to verse 6. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him. Now, let's, let's define these. When they, who's they? The disciples. Therefore, we're come together. They asked of him, who's him? Jesus. So when the disciples, therefore, were come together, they asked of Jesus, saying, Lord, will thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? That's not an unfair question. Okay, you've died, you've been buried, you've rose again. So now, now you're going to take out the Romans, right? He said unto them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons, which the Father has put in his own power. They're excited. (laughs) Boy, we're finally going to see him take the throne. And Jesus said, when that happens, it's none of your business. Well, that's kind of a letdown. What word signifies a turn, though? Look at it. It's not for you 
to know the seasons, the times of the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. But I got some good news for you. You shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. That word, the next word I want you to look at. How about power? There's two words generally for power. You have exousia, which is what you see in Matthew 28, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth, which means authority. That's not the word here. This word here is the actual word dunamis, from which we get our word dynamite. It means explosive energy. You're not going to receive authority. You're going to receive the energy that you need. You're going to be energized. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Why are we so weary in the service of the Lord? Because we're not letting the Holy Ghost use us like he wants to. You have him if you're saved. He's there. Problem is, apparently he doesn't have you or me. But you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. One other word. I'm very interested by this word, Witnesses. Now, this one, we're not going to get into the Greek. We're not going to do anything like that. What is a witness? If you go into a courtroom, what is the job of a witness? A witness is supposed to tell truthfully what happened. Y'all, that's all he asks of us. When you talk to somebody about the Lord, all he wants us to do is tell the truth about what happened that he died for sinners, was buried, and on the third day rose again. These are terms. Now, are there other terms that are of theological significance? Absolutely. These are just three examples. So it's terms. Then we got structure. We're still in that same verse, but you shall receive power. After that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and all Judea, and in Samaria and to the uttermost part of the earth. When we go back to verses 6 and 7, we see there's a dialogue, Jesus and the disciples going back and forth. You see in verse number 8, there's a cause and effect. You shall receive power to do what? To be witnesses. Can I give you a really good example of cause and effect as a structure in the Bible? How many of you are familiar with 2 Chronicles 7.14? If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, will heal their land. If, then. Here's another good cause and effect. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Cause and effect. That's a good thing to note. Here's another structure you'll see. You'll see an outline. Preachers love outlines. Did you know there's an outline in Acts 1.8? Well, what is it? In Jerusalem. You'll be witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. He outlines the mission. This is what I want you to do, and I'm giving you an outline of how to do it. Now, let's ask ourselves a couple of questions here. 
regarding this outline, how would you outline your responsibility with the gospel based on this verse? If he's speaking to us by extension, and he is, then how do you take this outline? Some people look at this outline and they take it geographically. Now, what do I mean by that? I'm to be a witness in Jerusalem. My Jerusalem is home. And Judea. For me, I would say Judea would be the region of southwest Virginia. I'm to be a witness in Samaria, those areas beyond our region, which would include the commonwealth and the country. And then to the uttermost part of the earth, that means I need to be involved in global missions. So you got a geographic way of looking at it. But you know, there's another way I think you could look at this outline. How about relationally? Maybe, maybe we're not talking about places, we're talking about people. Who's my Jerusalem? My family. Hey, not for nothing, sometimes that's the hardest people to win. My mother's not able to travel anymore, so it's been a long time since she's been present when I preach. Can I tell you, I used to hate it. It's so weird. Hate's probably the wrong word. I would be very uncomfortable when my mother, and even worse when my grandmother, would come to hear me preach. Why? Because they knew me, and they know how I really am, how I was when I was a kid. My grandmother, who's in heaven now, some of you had the uh, interesting experience of meeting her. My grandmother, I have saw her at times. I would preach some point, and I'd see her go, as if to say, you never did that. Yeah, I know. It always make me uncomfortable. Family can be hard sometimes, especially when they come right, right, right back at you with, oh, I see somebody's found religion. You didn't used to be like that. Well, thanks to Calvary, I don't go there anymore, you know. Jerusalem's my family. Who's Judea? I'd say that's my close friends. My circle. Who's Samaria? I'd say that's my acquaintances, my coworkers, those people that I know and recognize, but we aren't particularly close. Then who's the uttermost parts of the earth? Strangers, people I don't know. Now, y'all still with me? Let me bear down and we can finish this. Another part of structure is grammar. That's spelled correctly. I am capable. <laughs> All right. I said this in class. Actually, I didn't say this in class. I announced this passage, and for the first time probably in the history of my time ever as a pastor, I told the students not to turn in their Bibles. I said, keep your Bibles closed. Look at what I put on the screen. You're going to see why in a second. The first element of grammar we want to talk about is figures of comparison. How many of you know what a simile is? A comparison using like or as. A metaphor, things like that. An analogy. These are figures of comparison. A good example of that is in the Song of Solomon. 
And I told them, do not turn to the Song of Solomon because you will not stay on passage. Just look at the screen. Song of Solomon 4, oops, went too far. Verse number 1. Let's see if we can catch some figures of comparison. Behold, it's the bridegroom speaking. Thou art fair, my love. Behold, thou art fair. Thou hast dove's eyes within thy locks. That's a metaphor. Did she really have dove's eyes? No, because they've been really tiny and beady. What's he saying? They're dark. They're dark. Thy hair (laughs) is as a flock of goats. I don't think he's talking about it smells like a flock of goats or is as coarse as goat's hair can be. Probably he just meant it's thick. Okay. But when you're in love, you say things like that that appear from Mount Gilead. By the way, I'm not making fun of Scripture. I hope you know that. But I'm trying to get us to understand that these are figures of comparison. Thy teeth are like a flock of sheep that are even shorn. Well, a shorn sheep is very white. And so, your teeth are white. Um, Thy lips are like a thread of scarlet. That's getting closer to something that's palatable. That speech is comely. Thy temples are like a a piece of pomegranate within thy locks. That's got to be something cultural because I can't think of a time in my life that I've ever appreciated the beauty of a young lady as a young man and said, I really like her temples. Usually they're covered anyway. So apparently this was a thing. A temple, temples are like a piece of pomegranate. Thy neck is like the Tower of David. It's long. Now, What's my point here? Why am I talking about this? Be careful when you say things like, I take everything in the Bible literally. I am a literalist when it comes to interpreting Scripture. But not everything in the Bible is meant to be taken literally. Let me say that again because I don't want you leaving here thinking that I'm a liberal. In those parts of Scripture where it is clearly a metaphor, a simile, an analogy, take it as such. But you know, we have a tendency to do the opposite. We try to make something metaphorical that isn't. For instance, the demons, the the demonic creatures that come up out of the bottomless pit in Revelation, we've tried to make them into helicopters. Well, they got hair like a woman's, and they sound like chariots, and, and they've got stingers on their tails, and that, that had to be helicopters. No, because it doesn't say like or as. It's not metaphorical. It's not allegorical. These are demonic creatures that look exactly like John and described them, I think, because I don't have any reason to see otherwise. But here... If you really, really believe that Solomon's being literal, then that's what this girl looks like. 
There's the ivory tower, the Tower of David. I did not. There's the sheep. Okay, so, so what, we, what we need to understand is there are times when you're studying the Bible that it is clearly something that is, is not to be taken literally, and that's important because you can really get off, off on wrong doctrine if you don't understand that distinction. Everybody with me? Nobody leave here saying that I said that, you know, we ought not take the Bible literally. Jonah's just an allegory. No, Jonah really happened. Jonah got swallowed by a great fish. Now, there's debate as to whether or not he died in the fish and was resurrected or survived. That's not the issue tonight. He was in a fish's belly for three days, got vomited out, went back to work for God. That actually happened. Not an allegory. When you, and Brother, Brother Earl will get with me on this, you better be real careful when you get into prophecy. What you start saying is allegory versus what is literal. Oh, Lord, forgive me. That's how people become amillennialists. I have no problem believing in a literal 1,000-year kingdom that Jesus reigns over on this earth because i got nothing in Scripture to tell me different. All right. Then, then there's rhetorical questions. James chapter 2, verse 14 comes to mind. If a man say he have faith and have not works, can his faith save him? Now, this is for another day. But the answer to that question is probably not what you think. Within the Greek, when you spoke Koine Greek, when you asked a rhetorical question like that, there was usually something embedded in the Greek word that told you if a negative or positive answer was expected. You'd be surprised with that verse. We're not getting into that tonight. I'm just going to make you stew over it. How about Romans 8.31? Hey, let's turn there and look at it. We haven't turned in a while. Romans 8.31. What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? The expected answer is nobody. Nothing. How about this? How about intensives and repetition? Now, what, what that means is things that are doubled in the original language for intensive purposes or things that are repeated over and over again. The best example that I know of this Jesus did this a lot. John chapter 3, verse 3 is a good example. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. If he's saying something twice, what's that mean? This is super important. You need to get this. Truly, truly. Verily, verily. Another example is the book of Mark. In the book of Mark, there's four words that are translated from the same Greek word. Straightway, immediately, forthwith, and anon. Mark moves fast. And that's why those words are in there 40 times through the book of Mark. It uses the same language over and over again. This is something worth noticing. And then let's go to Acts 2.38. You know I love this chestnut. Acts 2.38. Grammar, figures of comparison, rhetorical questions, intensives and repetition, and then just basic word usage. 
we would be so much better off if we just use words correctly. And Peter said unto them, Repent. And be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. I got to be baptized in order to get the remission of sins? Not if you use basic word usage. What's the key word there? The word for? Repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. When you use the word for in any, pretty much any other application, um, I'm going to the doctor for I am sick, which you're likely to never hear me say. I don't go to doctors. I'm not saying I'm going to the doctor in order to get sick, although that happens a lot. I'm going to the doctor because I'm sick. Hey, thank you for that lovely note. I'm not saying thank you because you're going to give me a note. I'm saying thank you because you gave me a note. So then repent and be baptized for, because of, not in order to get it. Basic word usage. So that's pretty, pretty simple, and yet we've got an entire denomination that has built It's belief on baptismal regeneration off of that verse. They could have avoided all of that with basic word usage. A guy named Campbell got that started a long time ago. Uh, Literary form. I'll move quickly. Again, I'll try. When you're reading a passage of Scripture, what kind of literary form is that passage taking? For instance, is it a narrative? A narrative is a story. The Gospels, Acts, a lot of your historical books in the Old Testament follow a narrative. This happened, and then this happened, and this happened, and then this happened. It's a narrative. How about this? How about poetry? Psalm 119 is a good example of this. Now, if you, if you try looking for poetry the way we understand poetry, roses are red, violets are blue... That's not in the Bible. But Hebrew poetry is all over the place. Psalm 119 is a good example. Psalm 119 is divided into sections of eight verses apiece. And all of them begin with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalet, Shevav, Zion, and so forth. And every one of those verses within that eight-verse couplet begins with that Hebrew letter. That's how they did poetry. It didn't have to rhyme, which apparently poetry doesn't have to rhyme anyway. It's called free verse. But... Um, that's Hebrew poetry. And it's helpful to know that when you're studying. How about this? How about a sermon? What's a good example of a sermon in the Bible? How about Matthew 5 through 7? The Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached. Oh, how about this? How about parables? Matthew 13, the parable of the sower comes to mind. Maybe it takes the form of prophecy. Maybe it takes the form of an epistle, which is a letter. All of Paul's writings were letters. These are just six examples. So literary form. Then here's the last one. Atmosphere. 
atmosphere of the circumstances in which the scripture was written or in which the writer found himself when he wrote it. Three examples, the Psalms. We would know if you've read through the Psalms using the superscripts at the beginning, you know that some Psalms are written in happy times, some Psalms are written in difficult times. That matters how you interpret it. How about the Pauline epistles? Paul wrote some of those from prison. And frankly, I read 2 Timothy 4 from a lot different perspective than Hebrews or Galatians because it's a different atmosphere. And then poor Jeremiah. What kind of atmosphere did he have? Hey, Jeremiah, I got news for you, bud. Your entire message is bad news. I'm going to give you a tiny little piece in in Lamentations that's a glimmer of hope, but other than that, it's all bad news. You're, You're going to be imprisoned. You're going to be accused of being a spy. They're even going to try to kill you at times. You're going to get carried off to Egypt at one point. Uh, tradition tells us ultimately he was martyred. Oh, and by the way, Jeremiah, don't bother getting married. Man, what an atmosphere. And that's why they called him the weeping prophet and the lonely prophet. He lived up to it. So you read these things in view of their atmosphere. So next week. What are we going to cover next week with the Lord's help? Well, next week... Before we move on to, from observation to interpretation and application, the last thing we need to cover, real basic, we're going to learn how to read the Bible. How to read the Bible. You say, well, I already know how to do that. No, it doesn't say, and maybe you do, but we want to get some good, solid teaching about how to make sure you're not skimming the Bible, perusing the Bible, glancing through the Bible. How to actually read the Bible. Because when you're really reading it, things tend to pop up more quickly. They tend to pop up more efficiently and effectively than when you're just skimming. Oh, every once in a while the Lord throws something at me while I'm skimming, but usually it happens when I'm really reading.